I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Good morning, Prakaptan. I hope you are well and that your progress on the Stoic path is feeling especially frictionless today. In this episode, I'm going to try my best to square a circle many of you have told me you've struggled to square in your own understanding of Stoicism. And that is, what does it mean to be good exactly? Why does it matter? And how do I do it? And this is a poignant episode because I, as you know, have a little baby boy on the way, and I have found myself contemplating these things the more and more I go along as an expecting father, and I expect that one day, in the not-too-distant future, I will be asked by said baby boy why being good matters, what it even means, and how they can do it themselves. And to be upfront, I don't know that I possess the depth of understanding of Stoicism to get this right entirely today, but I'm going to try my very best, and I'm confident that by the end of the episode, you'll understand goodness at least a little bit better than you already do, and you'll have a strategy for achieving it yourself, or at least <laughs> working towards it. Before all that, though, thanks to a few new patrons. Thank you to Camille Jaworski, Suni johnson Guder, Byzant, Damien, and Beth Campbell Duke. I appreciate your support of my work, and I'm grateful to have you each as patrons, so thank you. I also just want to take a second here to let existing patrons and would-be patrons know that there is now a way to pay for an entire year of patronage up front. There is no benefit to me for you doing this. In fact, the argument could be made that it makes my monthly income less predictable. But a lot of you have asked if I could enable the ability for annual payments instead of, you know, the nickel and diming that happens every month. And I've decided if that helps you to better control your spending, then it's worth enabling because you're supporting me. And if I can make that easier for you, I should. Existing patrons can change to annual billing in their Patreon account and new patrons can elect to go for annual billing right from the start. There's no discount for pledging your patronage annually. It's just another way to support my work that doesn't require a monthly bill. Now let's break here for a couple of sponsorship messages. And when I return, I'll get started on today's topic, which I am surprisingly excited to dive into. Stay with me. 
I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. A quick refresher. In Stoicism, virtue is the only good. If something is good, it is either virtue itself or virtuous behavior or thinking. Virtue is not a quality, but rather a kind of learnable knowledge the knowledge of how to live excellently, or an expression which indicates such knowledge is possessed by the individual. The Greeks referred to this as erite, the Romans as virtue. I use virtue because it's a more familiar word to most people. So, to reform the statement, the knowledge of how to live excellently is the only good. But why is this the case? Because, for the Stoics, in order for something to be truly good, it could never be bad. Since everything we might think of as being good could also be, given the proper circumstances, bad, those things are not actually good. They are conditionally good. And if they're not absolutely good, but are instead conditionally good, they aren't objectively good at all. For example, eating ice cream can be considered good on a hot day. But eating ice cream could also be considered bad on a hot day by someone who has diabetes and is in the middle of a hypoglycemic episode. So since ice cream isn't always good, it's not a good. The knowledge of how to live excellently, on the other hand, could never be bad. For when and how could it be bad to know the exact thing required to think, choose, and act excellently. Now there's maybe some semantic argument to be had here. You might be thinking, for instance, suppose that a serial killer was targeting people who knew how to live excellently. Surely then, having this knowledge would not be considered good, right? 
I think the ancient Stoic response to this might be along the lines of, it's not the knowledge we possess as sages, if we do possess that knowledge, the knowledge of good. It's not that knowledge that is bad, but the lack of that knowledge in the serial killer, since it is probably not living excellently to be a serial killer. And by that logic, you might also say that it's not the ice cream that is good or bad, but the subjective impact of the ice cream on the person consuming it. And this is exactly the point. The knowledge of how to live excellently cannot ever have an externally subjective impact on the person who possesses it. It can only ever have a positive internal impact on the person who possesses it. So it is the only good. But why is this knowledge good? Why is the possession of this knowledge held in such high esteem by the ancient Stoics in the first place? The ancient Stoics believed that the universe was rational and comprised of a passive and active set of principles. The active principle, the organizing principle, was the logos, also thought of as divine reason. The passive principle was the pneuma, also known as the divine breath. We can set aside the pneuma for the most part in this episode as it's not important for my purposes, at least again in this episode, and we'll focus on the logos. This active organizing principle, the logos, can be thought of as the purest form of reason. It pervades everything to some degree and provides everything with, let's say, a dose of universal reason. Rocks have a dose of this reason, as do plants, animals, and humans. And I know I said I'd leave the pneuma out of this episode, but I do need to give it a bit of a head nod here because the pneuma, as the vehicle of the logos, in the same way that perhaps your vocal cords are the vehicle of your thoughts being expressed audibly, has a role to play in how concentrated a dose those things get. So logos and pneuma are a team. But I don't want to get hung up on the cosmology of Stoicism and lose your interest in the point this early in the episode. And that point is, universal reason exists in everything, and this is why everything has a way of being, naturally. This way of being is what it means to live in accordance with nature. You've heard this countless times on this podcast and in other Stoic content I'm sure you consume. If a thing lives in accordance with its own nature, it is living in accordance with nature, it is living in accordance with nature, and is therefore in alignment with divine reason or logos. Everything which exists does this effortlessly, except, it seems, for humans. Humans seem burdened, in a way, by their level of consciousness, and find themselves, as a result, in a position to have to actively effort in order to live in that alignment. Bumblebees bumble without choosing. Planets planet without choosing. Giraffes do their giraffe thing without choosing, and so on. Humans, on the other hand, must choose to fully embody their rational nature. They don't just do it automatically. Humans don't just human, as it were. The ancient Stoics looked around the whole of the ancient world, saw the logic of the universe in everything. They saw how the trees grew, how the animals played, and how there was harmony in nature that suggested some sort of rationality. And they noticed that when this rationality was left to its own devices, whole ecosystems 
flourished. And homeostasis, although that's not a word they would have used, I don't think, and that is to say balance, was always the end result. This was too sensible in the eyes of the ancient Stoics and beneficial to be the result of chaos. This was organized. It was rational. But then, being humans themselves, when they looked at humans, they probably said, and what about these dummies? They do exactly the opposite of what seems to be sensible and beneficial. They are chaos incarnate, and they're mucking everything up. Here's a quote from Zeno I think you're going to like. It comes to us through Cicero's De Natura Deorum, or On the Nature of the Gods. If flutes playing musical tunes grew on an olive tree, surely you would not question that the olive tree possessed some knowledge of the art of flute playing. Or, if plane trees bore well-tuned lutes, doubtless you would likewise infer that the plane trees themselves possessed the art of music. Why then should we not judge the world to be animate and endowed with wisdom when it produces animate and wise offspring? Now this is from the man himself, the founder of the philosophy, and in it, we can see the line of reasoning that suggests the only worthwhile goal for human beings, to fully embody the animation and wisdom we are endowed with. And we can also see the justification for why such wisdom is believed to actually exist and therefore be attainable, because it exists everywhere else in nature. And if that's true, then wisdom must exist in some part in us. When Stoicism is reduced to life hack or self-helpisms, there is something incredibly profound missed. And that is that the point of Stoicism, of the whole philosophy, is for its practitioners to connect with the universal logos that we all possess a share of, cultivate our relationship with it, and become fully rational beings that are nothing but a boon to the communities, ecosystems, and environments within which we live. This is a massive goal. It is unfathomable how massive a goal it really is. As big as any religious goal, but I dare say more difficult, since you're not trying to please some divine third party. Rather, you are part of that divine party, and you're trying to draw it out of yourself. Then, of course, there's also the difference that in religion, that divinity is a third party at all, and one which exists outside of nature and cares about, for example, who you marry or what political party you align yourself with, apparently. While in Stoicism, the divinity is you, and the Logos is not third party, but a fundamental part of actual nature. In fact, the entirety of nature. And I'm pointing these things out because... I really want you to internalize that the philosophy of Stoicism is as close to a religion as a philosophy can be in the size of its aims without actually being a supernatural philosophy. So you now understand what good is and why you might want to be good. But how do you be good? How can anyone ever hope to be as good as the bumblebee, a planet, or the noble giraffe. Stick with me through the break, and we will find out. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. 
We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I realize I took a little bit of a swipe at religion before the break, so let me offer an olive branch before anyone thinks I'm being too unkind. I actually find a lot more in common with religious folks these days than I used to, in that I now know what it feels like to believe you are holding the answer to all the world's problems in your hands, and everyone seems not to be listening to you when you talk about it or grasping it entirely. I find myself regularly in a position where I am fighting the urge to proselytize on behalf of Stoicism because I really do believe it to be, to use religious terminology, the light, the truth, the way, etc., in that I feel it really is a cure-all for what ails the world. And I suppose that means I feel somewhat more religious than I used to, in this regard anyway. But I do want to make it clear, in case it isn't, that Stoicism is an entirely naturalistic philosophy. And while the Stoics do call the universe God, they don't use that word the same way that contemporary or modern religions do. But I told you before the break that we were going to focus on how to be good, now that we know why we would want to be good. We understand the why, now how about the how? How does one be good? First, it is important to note that the ancient Stoics did not believe that wise men existed, and I think this is an often overlooked bit of Stoic history that gets lost in all of that the sage is as rare as the phoenix talk. Zeno, and others are on record as saying more than once that wise men don't exist. Sagehood is not an actually achievable state. Plutarch talks about this in De Stoic, Sextus Empiricus talks about it in multiple works, and Epictetus alludes to it in his discourses more than once when characterizing Zeno and Chrysippus in particular. Sagehood is not achievable, or at least it is not a state one could falsify externally, in the same way that one could not falsify the truth of my statement if I were to say to them, I'm hungry. That's an internal characteristic, being hungry, that is. And if I were virtuous, you might be able to make assumptions about my external-facing behavior and suggest I was a sage, but you wouldn't know it. And so both technically and theoretically, sagehood is at least not provable, not falsifiable, and so practically not possible. The point of Stoicism isn't to make us perfect before we die, lest we fail at life or fail at Stoicism. 
It is instead to keep us focused on inching ever closer to the Stoic ideal of sagehood so that when we die, we will not feel as though we wasted our time, and we will be able to say, honestly, that we spent our time appropriately and in a worthwhile manner. Compare this to the countless number of people who spend very little of their time working towards any big picture goal at all, and who die with mountains of regret, guilt, and anger. Clearly, there is a practical advantage to working towards perfection, even though it's not achievable. As Stoics, we work to become better while keeping our eyes on good, not as a goal, but as a constant reminder that there's always more work to do and more room for growth as individuals. It also helps us to be more compassionate in concerns to others. So how do we do it? How do we become good? by using our rational faculty to identify what exactly is true or reasonable and transforming the knowledge of that truth or reasonableness into thoughts, actions, and attitudes. For example, your friend is late for dinner. This is a fact. It's falsifiable. They are late. You find yourself assuming that he's a flake, an inconsiderate jerk who hasn't prioritized your friendship and doesn't respect your time. You are fuming mad. But is any of but is any of this true? Potentially, but you don't know for certain. It could be that your friend's wife collapsed in the kitchen and he's on his way to the hospital in the back of an ambulance holding his wife's hand and hoping she doesn't die. Now that might not be the most likely of scenarios, but it is at least a probable one. In any event, choosing to believe the worst is no better supported in this example than is choosing to believe the unlikely. To apply a more modern concept, you've probably heard of Schrodinger's cat. Well, you might think of this as Schrodinger's reality or Zeno's impression. <laughs> you don't know what the truth is until you know what the truth is. And in the meantime, for all intents and purposes, all realities, all impressions could be the case. Your friend is late. That's a reality you know for certain. But the reality that is the cause of the lateness is not known. What does the sage do in this case? Become worried and anxious? Get angry? Probably neither of those. For what rational reason is there to feel either of those emotions? The sage would, probably, take out his or her cell phone and send their friend a text or give them a phone call. Hey, I'm at the restaurant. Are you on your way? This is an appropriate thing to do, given the facts. To ask yourself, what would the sage do, seems, perhaps, silly. But it is what you do as Prakaptan all the time. You're assessing the situation at hand and reasoning for yourself what is the behavior most approaching sage-like behavior in response to what is known. Now, there are two important things of note here. First, you don't have to know the whole truth in order to make a rational choice. For example, if you're a teacher in a classroom and you hear over the school announcement system that there's an active shooter on campus, you don't say to yourself, oh, well, I don't know for sure if this is or isn't a drill. And even if it's not, I don't know for sure that the gun the shooter has is even loaded. Maybe I shouldn't do anything until I'm 100% certain of those things. And then wait and find out. That would be stupid and dangerous. Instead, you are trying to figure out what is appropriate in this situation. You're a teacher, and part of your role is the protection of the kids in your class. School shootings happen, unfortunately, 
It's therefore logical to assume a real and present threat exists and to then act appropriately with that in mind, with that well-reasoned-to conclusion in mind. And then secondly, the sage makes mistakes. Sages are not gods. They are not all-knowing beings. Sages are entirely rational beings, not all-knowing ones. If my friend is a sage, and I decide to play a joke on her by handing her a piece of wax fruit, and she bites into it, believing it is real, she's done nothing unsage-like. I'm a friend. It was reasonable for her to trust me. It was reasonable for her to believe that a fruit handed to her by a friend was a real fruit. Biting into it, therefore, doesn't make her not a sage, nor does believing it was a real fruit. It makes me a practical joker who thinks making friends bite fake fruit is appropriate or funny. So sages don't not act until all the facts are known because that's dumb and highly impractical. Instead, they wait until they have an understanding of a situation that they feel provides them with the ability to make a rational choice. And sometimes they can't wait. Sometimes the information at hand is the only information they're going to get, and they're in a position where a decision has to be made. And in that case, in such a case, the sage makes the most appropriate choice given the available information. And this is why the Stoics don't believe that the moral judgment of a choice should be determined by the outcomes of the choice, but instead should be determined by assessing the logic and rationale and reason involved in arriving at the choice that was made. And everything you've heard in this episode probably makes one thing very clear, that you will never be completely good because you'll never be a sage, but that there is, should you choose to adopt it, a framework for being good. And it's surprisingly simple. Maybe there are just five steps to being good. Step one, observe what's going on and what can you know for certain. Step two, consider what do all these observations mean? Step three, reason. Now that we've observed what we can and have considered what it all means, we can reason towards a sensible and logical choice or course of action. Step four, commit and choose. Actually make the choice and commit to making it. And then step five, act. Act in accordance with those previous four steps. Now, all that's left is for you to do these five steps forever, all the time, with everything, and I'll see you at the sages table this Christmas. Except, of course, I won't because neither of us will make it there. But I will see you a bit closer to the sages table this year than last year, and maybe we can all get together and go for Korean corn dogs as imperfect Stoics and progressing Prakopton. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I appreciate you being here to listen to new episodes every Monday and Friday. If you haven't already, consider subscribing to the podcast or following it in whatever app you use to listen. And if you have thoughts or comments about today's episode and you happen to be a Spotify listener, you can leave a comment on this episode's listening page and let me know what you thought or if you have any questions. Thanks again to all the new patrons. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, take care.